pandemic got us into a reflective space and made us look inward to see what we can do for the world at large. As a self-expression coach, I became a catalyst for women and started Vani, a one-on-one -on -one coaching program for women on finding their voice, to speak up, to be visible. As a storyteller, I spotted there were many ordinary people amongst us leading extraordinary lives, making a difference to the world, and they needed to be heard. Thus was born You and I with Rashmi Shetty, where amazing personal journeys with their uniqueness and individuality are showcased. A reaffirmation of the fact, open your eyes wider, the world is far more beautiful when we acknowledge the presence of both you and I. Our guest today is the inspirational Sanjay Deshpande, who was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor at the age of 29. A massive grand mal seizure landed him in the emergency room on the day he landed on the Harvard University campus to start his master's program in September 2021. The same week, he flew back to India to get a seven-hour-long brain surgery. It's been almost two years since and he's tumor-free. He's passionate about mental health, queer rights, and cancer advocacy. He loves to dance and has recently started writing poetry. He hopes to publish a memoir someday and travel the world before he kicks the bucket, he says. He led the effort to conceptualize, manage, write, and publish his first book, Don't Ask Me How I'm Doing with several other contributors to raise awareness about the unique challenges faced by South Asian and Indian young adult cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers. He hopes this book will help hundreds, if not thousands of others who have to deal with an insidious disease like cancer when they are at the peak of their lives and careers. He's back to Harvard now to finish his master's program surprising everyone around him, including his doctor. Listen in as Sanjay shares his journey with all honesty in this conversation, completely vulnerable and pragmatic. Hi Sanjay, such a pleasure to meet you after conversations on LinkedIn. Welcome mm -hmm. to you and I with Rashmi Shetty. Thank you so much for having me over. I'm very excited. <laughs> so am I. But before we get to the Sanjay Deshpande that the world knows you today as, I want to know what little Sanjay was like. What kind of a boy were you in school, college? What was your childhood like and where was it? That's a very interesting question. I grew up across different parts of the world, technically. Um, I was born in a place called Nanded in Maharashtra. And then I grew up in a place called Riyadh which is the capital of Saudi Arabia. And then I came back to Hyderabad, which is where my parents currently live. And uh, I spent a large part of my childhood in these three places. And then I went to Delhi, Bombay, and then now in Cambridge, Boston for my work and education. 
Yeah, so I had a pretty normal childhood uh, as a kid. Um, I was quite mischievous and uh, my parents would constantly run around or run behind me to make sure that I don't uh, do something naughty again. And uh, since I grew up in different parts of the country and the world, I had a very multicultural sort of like a a, a childhood. Uh, My parents are half Marathi, half Telugu. And on my mother's side, she's half Marathi, half Kannada. And my father's side is half Marathi, half Telugu. So I grew up in a multicultural household, speaking multiple languages and uh, learning multiple cultures. So it was very interesting for me to only realize later on that, you know, I have a very like different sort of an upbringing from, say, my classmates and friends that I had at that time. This helped me see the world um, in multiple dimensions instead of looking at it in a single dimension. Uh, it was less 2D for me and more 4D for me. Yeah, I think right about around my eighth grade is when I started taking my academics seriously. Till then, I was be- barely interested in studying. Um, Were you was... into sports or something at that point of time? I was actually into dance. So I would spend oh. a lot of time in dance. I would spend a lot of time playing with my friends. I used to love playing out, outdoors, like the regular games like hide and seek and stuff like that. I think something switched in me in my eighth grade. I think it could be because I had a very good teacher, class teacher, who made me realize that, um, you know, studying would give me, uh, studying well would give me the opportunities I want in my life to succeed. And that kind of flipped my entire approach to school then. I mean, even before that, I was always getting trophies and medals home for extracurricular activities like uh, dance, like um, um, debates and for like um, Model United Nations. But not necessarily was I wasn't necessarily in the top of my class till 8th standard. But then that switched in 8th standard. And then I was always in top three, like come hail or high water, I would do anything to make sure I was in top three because I also started enjoying studying. I think it gave me a sense of uh, adrenaline rush Mm -hmm. to be able to solve a certain math problem, to be able to do a certain essay well. And I had uh, really good uh, teachers who encouraged me, uh, who helped me learn instead of just like mugging up and like vomiting it on exam papers. So that really changed my educational trajectory. This helped me um, get really good grades in my 10th standard exam. And my parents' first instinct, my parents are both doctors, and I have an older sister who's an engineer, and all my cousins in my family are engineers. (laughs) My parents' first instinct was to put me in um, medical... A preparatory program like biology physics chemistry plus 12 program or 12 standard program uh, but then I was scared of blood so I was just like I am not going to be a doctor at any cost and I'd seen my mother work really hard she's a surgeon and she would have to spend like nights in the hospital and she was at the beck and call of her patients I did not want that life for myself both my parents spent nearly 11 years to just finish studying, to start earning. And I did not want that for myself at all. 
So I decided to do maths, physics, chemistry, because that was the only other option I was aware of, because, you know, in Hyderabad, at least you're either a doctor or an engineer. No other option per se exists. So I started doing maths, physics, chemistry as my 11th and 12th standard courses. But my parents also put me in IIT JE prep, mm -hmm. which is like a rite of passage or almost like a ritual that every person goes through in the South. Um, but I think midway in my first year, I realized that I did not want to be an engineer because there was a part of me that was like crying from inside every time I was like just focusing on these subjects because I felt like there was a part of me that wanted to do other things like art, social sciences, humanities. But those are your dance. Your dance took a backseat. Yeah, yeah, that too. Like I actually did not get an opportunity to pursue that as a career. Uh, although my mother and father never really stopped me from exploring that. They never saw it as a career. That's the only difference. But as hobbies, they never discouraged me. Then I rebelled. At one point, I was like, no, I'm not going to do engineering. And my parents were like, we are going to make you an engineer. There's no other option. So I ran away from home. <laughs> and uh, I ran away from home, yes. Uh, because they were very persistent. And I was just like, okay, if it's not going to be my way, then I'll have to do something extreme to help you understand that I'm not going to pursue this. So I ran away from home. I went to my grandmother's place and then they did not know where I was for a long time and they freaked out. And then later they found out I was at my grandmother's place. And then I think a bunch of people in my family helped them understand it. First, they tried to convince me and I was just like, I steadfastly said no. And that's when they realized, okay, okay, let him do what he wants to do. So I dropped out of the IIT JE prep and I continued to finish my 12th standard. With the and maths and science. Yes, maths and science. Okay. The unfortunate or fortunate thing was I did extremely well in maths and science and my parents again freaked out. They're like, you have a 100% score in your maths and you have an aggregate score of 98% in maths and science. Why would you not do engineering? And I'm just like, just because I'm good at something doesn't mean I'm interested in it. That was an uphill battle to fight with them, to help them understand that, you know, I genuinely don't want to pursue this. And at that point, they asked me, okay, what do you want to pursue? There were very few, I mean, there were very limited opportunities for me to understand what exists out there. One of the things that I found interesting at that point was becoming a news anchor. I wanted to be like a Rajdeep Sardesai. I wanted to be like a Barkhadat on screen doing like in international reporting and like being in the Kargil war and like reporting from there. So I told them I want to be a journalist. And they were like, is that even a career option? <laughs> and then I applied to a bunch of schools across the country. I think I applied to Manipal University, I applied to Symbiosis, Pune, and I applied to uh, several colleges in Bombay. Uh, but we had no idea which ones were good, which ones were not, because th these were not things anyone in my family had pursued. So I eventually got through Xavier's Bombay and like I had an uncle who used to live in Bombay who told us that, you know, the stalwarts of like business world, finance world and Bollywood go to Xavier's Bombay. It's the best college in the West. I mean, it's one of the best colleges in the country. And we were like, what is this college? We have no idea. We've never heard of it. So then once he convinced me and my parents, rather my parents and I, um, 
then I decided to be at Xavier's Bombay. And that was quite an experience. I think Xavier's Bombay opened the world to me. Spending time in journalism, is it? In Xavier's? Yes, I studied uh, media and communication. Uh, the two subjects that were majors were journalism and advertising. Okay. And which so, year are we in now? Uh, 2010. Chronologically. Okay. Yeah. 2010. That's when I joined Xavier's Bombay. At Xavier's Bombay, I faced, I mean, there were two large things that happened at Xavier's Bombay. One, um, I got bullied to a certain extent. Uh, I felt out of place to a large extent uh, because my cultural and social class was very different. Uh, I did not speak English as well as them. I did not have the same social currency as them. I did not have the exposure they had. So it felt like I was completely out of place. I felt like a fish that has been like pulled out of water and put on a plate. But at the same time, I also got a lot of exposure, which I otherwise would have never got. And uh, through that process, I learned a lot about the world. I learned a lot about myself. I learned about what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And by the time I graduated from Xavier's Bombay, I was the student of the year and valedictorian. So I was pretty happy <laughs> to have had that exposure. What what helped you, uh, Sanjay, looking back now, if uh, you felt like a fish out of water, what is it that kept you motivated and pushed you to end up as the best student? Um, I think, A, I had great friends. I mean, it was very annoying that they would correct my English all the time. But then that helped me learn the language better. The way I speak now, I think in a large part is due to their credit. I mean, the credit goes to them. Uh, if they hadn't corrected me the up, umpteen numbers of time they did, I would not be speaking the way I do. I would not have been able to write a book. I would never be an author. So that's number one. But you number were somebody who was a debater, uh, a person. Yeah, but then I think the standards are very different in the South versus the standards being in Bombay. Okay. I think the way you speak a certain language, an accent, the kind of words you use, mm -hmm. uh, they're very different. That was a big cultural shock for me because um, I think in South, we don't care so much about like how flowery our vocabulary is, how many different ways can you say the same thing but when I reached Bombay I was surrounded by people who went to really really good schools so I, I had batchmates who went to Dhirubhai Ambani school I were I had batchmates who went to international schools I had batchmates batchmates who were from American embassy school I had batchmates from the Dune school Mayo College school and uh, that made me realize that you know studying in ICSC, ISC and international boards and in general like IB programs and Cambridge programs gives you a rich vocabulary and like a very strong hold of English as a language uh, instead of just like having the rudimentary sort of like basic skeleton of the language through which you communicate. I mean which I was pretty good at. I had the basic skeleton but I didn't have the polish so to speak. The gravitas and the panache and the polish comes with a different kind of exposure and practice, which I built at Xavier's. So then uh, you went on to complete it. You finished college uh, with top honors. Yeah. Then what, where did life take you? 
life gave me a huge shock. I thought like right after graduating as the best student at Xavier's, I would like the world would open its doors for me and there would be like opportunities over opportunities. But there weren't that many opportunities. <laughs> and so I faced my first setback by realizing that the world I had chosen to be a part of, which is media and communication, uh, was very cutthroat and like very um, competitive. So my first job, I earned 16,000 rupees a month, uh, which wasn't enough to survive in a place like Bombay, where like real estate is so expensive, rent in itself, uh, rent in itself is so high that uh, some days I would not be even able to afford food. I had to borrow money from my parents, which felt extremely, extremely shameful. Because uh, here I was who had fought with my parents and said like, oh, I'm going to become a journalist now. I'm going to become an advertiser now. And I'm going to become like a big shot. You just wait and see how like the world is going to bow to me. And here I am begging them for money again. So that was a very uh, huge um, uh, shock for me. But it also made me realize that uh, academics are very different from what the real world is like. Uh, you could be fantastic at something academically and uh, the real world looks for different things and uh, works very differently. There's a hidden curriculum. Just because you're the best student at something doesn't necessarily mean you get best opportunities. Uh, your network matters, who you know matters because that actually gets you jobs, uh, that actually gets you promotions and navigating how the workplace works, how the politics work. All of those are things that I had to learn on my own. And if only I had a mentor or a advisor who could teach me these things, then I would have been far more successful at that point of time. I learned all of it, but it was through a lot of, <laughs> how do I put it, through a lot of speed bumps, uh, speed breakers and like hitting the wall multiple times. So yeah, so I started my career with like a very, very, very rudimentary salary. And uh, then I discovered this program called the Young India Fellowship Program at Ashoka University, uh, which was called the Rhodes Scholarship of India. Mm -hmm. So I was extremely interested because I had started working uh, in advertising instead of journalism for about like six to eight months when I realized that I don't want to be selling fairness creams to people who are already beautiful. I don't, it felt very unethical to me to do a lot of stuff that advertising requires you to do. So it didn't align with my personal values. And then like I had an existential crisis that I spent three years learning this and I'm not even sure I want to do this anymore. Yeah. So in that existential crisis, I decided to do the Young India Fellowship Program. Again, a very competitive program. Very few people get through it. it has an acceptance rate of less than 10%. I still decided to go ahead and apply. No, one and... second. Never did you think of going back to Hyderabad to be with your parents and try in Hyderabad? No. <laughs> I, was, I wanted to be as far away from home as possible because um, there are a couple of interesting things. I felt like they were stuck in the past. They were stuck in their own time and I had progressed a lot because they did not have the exposure I had. Bombay gave me a lot of exposure. Bombay gave me a lot of access to experiences and access to networks, which they did not have. So they did not understand my life, my aspirations, the lifestyle I lived. So in many ways, like going back felt like I was being stifled. Apart from visiting my parents like a couple of times a year and speaking to them like a couple of times a week, I didn't necessarily want to go back to Hyderabad or 
go back to living with my parents so i got into the young india fellowship program that was quite the life changing experience again i would have never found out about young india fellowship program if i had not gone to zevis bombay so this helped me understand how cultural capital works it's a currency that you have which is invisible in nature but is only available to people who have earned it or like who have the resources for it so it's a privilege in many ways um so i went to a young india fellowship program it's a one year liberal arts and leadership uh, uh, program taught by professors from across the world from the best universities oxford cambridge uh, harvard uh, stanford mit yale so um i got exposed to a sort of curriculum that i had never experienced before so in india our education system is modeled on the way oxford and cambridge work you have three year undergraduate programs you pick a subject and you go deep into it and that's how it works um and it's a lecture format like there's a teacher who imparts knowledge to students and students are expected to give exams at the end of the year to learn to prove that they have mastered the knowledge that they have been um uh, imparted with uh and i went to young india fellowship program which is based on the american system of education which is a lot of dialogue the socratic method of learning a lot of discussion um a lot of you know reading and like self learning and self directed learning you could choose what you want to study which for me was mind blowing so i became a huge fan of liberal arts immediately and i decided that i want to switch into the education sector because i feel like that's my calling uh, i want to help others get access to the kind of education i got access to because of which i am the person i am today and that's how i switched into education uh, while i was at the fellowship i did a um, i worked with the uh, U- university of chicago's international innovation corps which is their um, sort of a fellowship program in india uh, where they pick a bunch of students uh, to work with a member of the parliament to help them in their own projects so uh-huh. i got a chance to work with uh, the member of parliament from jaipur uh colonel rajavardhan singh rathod who is an olympic olympian and uh, the project we worked on was called uh, pradhan mantri uh, model village project the pm model village project where like each mp adopts a village and transforms it into a model village and that will be then replicated across their state so did you choose your mp or you were allotted the MP? no i was allotted an mp <laughs> i think back then i did not know enough about indian politics uh to necessarily make any decisions per se i am far more aware now luckily for me i had a bunch of friends who studied at very good universities with like a lot more po- political awareness like i had friends from jnu delhi university uh, jamia uh, when i was living in delhi uh who helped oh, me so the scholarship took you to delhi this college yeah, the yeah, fellowship program yeah, yeah. yeah the ashoka university is in sonipat which is yes. a part of delhi hcr yeah. so i then moved to delhi and i started living in delhi i lived in delhi for about 7 years in total oh. after 4 years in bombay uh, so i moved there that was an amazing experience because i got exposure again to different style of education different subjects that i never thought of different professors who uh uh taught in different pedagogies and uh it was really mind blowing 
um so then i shifted into education and then i started my first job after the young india fellowship program was up in this startup called purple squirrel adventures which worked on uh, helping students um do uh, an apprenticeship or what is traditionally called industry visits so that they understand like what a day in the life of a certain professional is because the big problem in india is we are students are made to choose careers without knowing what that career entails and so we thought at least the company thought that you know if students had the ability to see what the day in like a day in the life of a certain professional is then they would be able to make better decisions about their careers so yeah i worked there for 6 months unfortunately because it was a startup it shut down and then i had to look for another job and then i moved into the non-profit space because i was like i want to do something which which involves social impact i don't want to do any for profit work at this moment so i moved into the non-profit space i worked with nascom's foundation nascom is the industry body for all the it and bpo companies in india and that was again a brilliant experience because i was able to build a lot of skills that i did not have in project management in community uh, outreach in program management in stakeholder management in negotiation conflict management everything i think my stint at nascom foundation which was for 2 years uh, really helped me become the person i am today and um, i had brilliant mentors amazing managers and a, a very very congenial uh, work culture which helped me grow as a person and uh, from being a young headless chicken i went on to become someone who ran a multi million dollar project uh, for across the country that really helped me see how social impact works but then i was largely doing managing or monitoring programs i was like i want to get my hands dirty i want to build something from scratch so then uh pramatrat sinha who ha- who is the founding dean of isb hyderabad and founder of ashoka university was the person who actually interviewed me for young india fellowship uh was looking for people to join um his team which was going to start something new in the space of uh, 21st century skills for adult learners and they were looking for people back then i applied and then i joined them as their first founding team members and uh, then for the next three and a half years i spent building harappa from scratch again that was a life changing experience because i saw how organizations are built from scratch um i saw what it takes to um move a move an idea from a brainstorming stage to a minimum viable product stage to um a pilot stage to the iteration stage to um rollout stage and then taking feedback and pivoting when required and we had to pivot because covid happened in between and then we had to change our uh, delivery model we had to change the way we made revenue and all of that was quite a big learning experience i got to mentor a lot of uh, reportees move from a individual team member to a manager manager to a senior manager senior manager to a senior manager to a vertical lead so i had a lot of professional growth in the 3 and 1/2 years that i was at harappa and um, 
my managers were very good in helping me grow they pushed me to build my own managerial skills and uh, i had great colleagues who gave me support to be a better leader and i had great reportees who helped me become a better manager yeah i still look back very fondly at the team i worked with at harappa yeah i can see that at this point when you've been telling us about your life and your entire journey uh was there a point when you paused and said uh, oh my god life thank you so much uh for making me the chosen one because you seem to be in the right place at the right time picking the right skills equipping yourself for the next step life had planned for you actually it was the other way around i burnt out multiple times in my journey oh and because because i was so ambitious and because i was all about like oh i want to be successful i want to go to oxford cambridge harvard yale i pushed myself very hard um, in terms of achievement and my orientation was towards like the next goal always so mm-hmm. never never been satisfied with having enough okay so so i pushed myself very hard and that pushing myself very hard led to a lot of success mm-hmm. uh, but it came always at a cost so i would either have physical exhaustion or mental um, burnout mm-hmm. uh, multiple times i mean they were peppered throughout my career but finally in the pandemic i think i had a big mental breakdown uh which made me completely depressed and suicidal because i felt like no matter what i did was never enough uh which is when i started seeking therapy i know it's a big taboo word in the professional world in general in india therapy is just not like anymore any... i think the pandemic has shaken everyone today um, of course i yeah. hope so because i talk very openly about mental health and like the importance yeah. of taking your mental health and uh, my therapist really helped me uh overcome a lot of these challenges i was facing that helped me survive whatever i was going through the every time i had a mental breakdown i knew that i had a therapist that i could go to to figure out how to navigate it okay. i was at the right place at the right time but i also pushed myself to the brink of exhaustion and burnout and uh, that kind of made me only realize in retrospect when i got diagnosed with cancer that my lifestyle was pretty bad i was working for long hours sometimes 14 hours a day uh barely sleeping enough not eating on time not getting enough exercise just because i was just so focused on doing well at work and uh, working in a startup and working in non-profits is not easy there's sometimes just a lot to do and there there are not enough people and you have targets to achieve and then there are people dependent on you and you keep telling yourself that you know you'll start the gym later you will start exercising later or you can eat dinner later or you can sleep over the weekend but then you're working on weekends as well so that kind of affected my health a lot so i would not say that i ever paused to reflect and feel grateful about my journey um although i would say that i feel extremely grateful that even though i i never acknowledge it openly i was lucky enough that my parents relented and let me pursue these pursue these uh, educational experiences even though they had no clue about them did not understand how it works um and let me pursue my own career they did not put any pressure on me 
I mean, of course, my mother would call once in a while and say like, oh, look at that cousin who's earning so much. He's now working at Google. A look at that cousin. He's moved to the US now. See, if you had done engineering, you would have also become like this. Uh, I mean, I think she was just trying to encourage me in a very roundabout way. But uh, yeah, I think I'm just grateful that I got the opportunities I got. Um, especially educational opportunities because I realized how your the pedigree of your college and the network that you get from your college really propels you in your career. Um, yes, in the first few years, it matters the most. But later in your career also, you don't look for jobs or get jobs through job portal websites. You essentially get them through your network. So that's what I discovered and learned. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful for that. So all your moves, you, you just shared how you had a burnout each time. But that burnout was never part of your story while you were sharing it. So the shifts were because of the burnout or the shifts were because you read something, saw something and you were like, okay, this is the next best thing. So let me jump onto that bandwagon. Every time you move to a different space, was it because you read about it and thought, okay, this is where I should be? What drew you to the different spaces? You said, now I need to get my hands dirty. And then you went into that space. So what was propelling you? What was it that was telling you, Sanjay, okay, now move. What did you want? I think they were not always motivated by burnout. Uh, sometimes they were motivated by burnout and the organization I was working with. But a lot of the times they were motivated by this fire in my belly, which wanted to like try new things. And But I did not want to leave the sector completely. I started with ed public education for school students to skilling and training. And uh, then I moved to using technology for training. Then I moved into online learning. Two things motivated me. One is the need to see impact because I like tangible impact. I like to be able to say that so many people benefited from this program that I created or I designed or I was a part of. Uh, but uh, I think the other thing that motivated me was also the fact that I felt the need to try different things. Because if this was the non-profit way of doing it, I want to see what the for-profit way to do it. I want to see what the social enterprise model is. I want to see how technology for good works. So there was this need to try new things. I couldn't stay in one place for too long because this, there was this insatiable desire to learn new ways of doing the same thing. So the Sanjay who woke up in 8th standard was the one that propelled you yeah, to maybe. everything that you were doing then on? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, there was there was that. Yeah, I think I just wanted to try different things and learn different ways of scaling impact. Okay. Okay. And okay, as a result of all of this, when were you diagnosed with cancer and where were you at that? There's a bit of a backstory for that. While I was working at Harappa, a year and a half before I moved on from there, I applied to a lot of colleges in the UK. I wanted to do... Uh, I wanted to study how there could be alternate ways of being a leader because every time someone thinks of leadership, there's a very um, image of it, right? Like there's a very stoic person who is like really um, driving the organization, is no nonsense, uh, takes their job seriously. 
but i felt like there could be alternate ways of being a leader i think right around that time jacinda the prime minister of new new zealand did a fabulous job of handling the pandemic and i thought like that way of being an empathetic a more authentic leader who's willing to talk about their emotions their challenges out in the open and not consider that as a weakness was a very fascinating thing to study and to promote uh in organizations so i had applied for organizational behavior organizational uh psychology programs in the uk i was going to go to london school of economics to do my masters but the pandemic hit and then my parents and my mentor both told me that you know i should probably skip it for now um so i skipped that and then i continued working at harappa for one and a half years and then uh, i applied to harvard and i got through harvard and i moved on from harappa to go to harvard i landed at harvard university on the day i landed on campus i got a life threatening seizure i was uh, taken to the er uh, i was in the er for 48 hours and 48 hours later um, they did mri scans and ct scans and told me they found something in my head they sat down next to me and in a very um nonchalant way told me that you seem to have a malignant brain tumor and uh, our assumption is if that's true then you may not live for more than 5 years this was on the day before my orientation for a program that i had looked forward to for so long and uh, so that's when i got diagnosed and i was still in a daze but i still managed to call up my sister tell her to inform my, my parents because i did not have the heart to tell my parents my parents then found out they of course had a huge like shock but then my father was uh, strong enough to speak to the doctor the doctors in the us were trying to wheel me into the emergency surgery room because they were like we need to get this tumor out immediately otherwise you're not going to live and i in no way wanted to get treated in the us because medical insurance is very infamous in the us and my parents are both doctors it would be much easier for me to be back in hyderabad and get treatment done so i came back to india i mean uh, so the doc so my father spoke to the surgeon there and he convinced the surgeon that i'll get my treatment done in india immediately and i should be discharged the doctors in the harvard medical school hospital reluctantly discharged me making me sign a legal document saying that we have discharged you against medical advice and anything that happens to you is not our responsibility and then i had to take a 30 hour flight back to india mm-hmm. and then we met several doctors you traveled alone uh, yeah and th- there was no other option for me because yeah. uh, and what was do you recall what was uh, what were the stream of consciousness <laughs> spaces that you were in while you were traveling back any thoughts anything that you recall all i kept thinking of which i remember is like do not get a seizure in the plane i'll be deboarded do not get a seizure do not get a seizure i just kept telling myself for 30 hours do not get a seizure and that's all i could think of i think it hit, hadn't hit me uh that you know someone had told me that you have only 5 years left to live uh because i was just so focused on like the next step i went to the college i got myself a deferral i did everything here i got my fees refunded i got my uh ho- dorm fees or hostel fees refunded i did all of that and then i left so 
I was almost in this mechanical mode where I I completely blocked out what had happened and what I was informed and was just focusing on okay this needs to be done this needs to be done this needs to be done and I boarded the flight and then I started thinking <laughs> okay it's like so logical thinking which part of you made you do all of this because even if you're an autopilot to know that okay i i need to go back it, it may take some time back in india so i need to do all these financials is something where you have to be super alert to remember right because you're all alone there yeah i think my i think there's a part of my brain that just kicked in saying that okay sanjay this has happened you cannot change it so what can you do right now i'm a very pragmatic person even with my uh, even with my diagnosis and prognosis i know that it's incurable cancer i know it will come back i know it will eventually kill me but can i live my life till that happens so what can i do right now to live well till that happens so how can i adapt my life to make sure that i have good quality of life till i eventually die i'm very pragmatic in that way like people look at me and think like what an I mean, what a weird person is this? Like, why are they not like feeling very emotional about it? Oh, I'm very emotional about it. I just like, I feel like, yes, there are days when I feel like, oh my god, why this has happened to me? What was my fault and all of that? And then there are days when I'm just like, this has happened. Now, what do you do about it? What is within the realm of your control and what is not in the realm of your control? So, if there are things which are in, within the realm of your control, what can you do about them? so i've changed my lifestyle i sleep on time i eat better i try to get some exercise i make sure i avoid my seizure triggers i take my medication on time i meet my doctors regularly so that's all i can control now when will when will this come back well god knows when it will come back so i can't really do much about it so my parents really hated that i'm so pragmatic because they're like either i think people in general are scared of mortality there's death anxiety in our society in general but i am um, not scared of dying anymore because that will just make me um dysfunctional i will not be able to do anything if i'm constantly thinking about oh my god i'm going to die so what i'm scared of though is dying a very painful death or dying or living a life which doesn't have good quality of life i'd rather die early then live a life which is painful or which is like completely um dysfunctional because uh, those who are born are going to die one day so yeah everyone's going to die don't know when and yeah. uh, that's how we live like we're going to live forever but yeah i am at least aware of my mortality i am aware of the fact that you know there's this bubble of invincibility that you have especially as a young person i got diagnosed at 29 i mean who would have imagined like at 29 and this was post pandemic or in the pandemic this was post pandemic september 2021 oh okay okay yeah so i came face to face with mortality i had a near death experience and that kind of pops the bubble and makes you realize that you're not invincible and like you keep thinking and pushing things to the future thinking that oh i'm going to live till 50 i'm going to live till 60 i'm going to live till 80 90 but what if you don't and um, so how can you live right now what do you need to do right now to make the most of the time you have true so what did you do once you came back to india I came back met a lot of doctors scoped out the best hospitals we could go to and then we decided on our uh, surgery date because 
my parents did not want me to get any uh, surgical intervention. They were hoping like if I could just get chemo or radiation and it'll get better. But the doctor said like, till we do a surgery and see what type of cancer it is, we can't necessarily decide what the treatment will be. So then we had to set a date for surgery and uh, I got operated on 28th September 2021. It was a seven, seven and a half hour long surgery and it was really life-threatening because brain is a very vital organ. Like if even if you touch something uh, inadvertently, a person could either be paralyzed or dead or lose their ability to speak, move, so many things that can go wrong. And uh, fortunately for me, my surgeon was excellent. And uh, in that way, um, my surgery went well. But uh, I think I had partial paralysis on the left side of my body because of the surgery i mean which we knew like because my tumor was in the right part of my brain that there would be some sort of an after effect of my surgery so i spent then after that a couple of months learning how to use the left side of my body again i literally had to learn how to pick up stuff from my left side had using my left hand i had to learn how to like feed myself i had to learn how to clothe myself bathe myself it was very difficult the rehabilitation period but then I had no choice so I pushed myself to do it because I'm, I was like I'm not going to live like this I have to push myself I still have deficits which are cognitive like the left side of my body is still not at 100% it's at 90% so which is a physical deficit but I don't let it affect my life I find ways to make sure that I compensate for it I have cognizant deficits. I mean, my memory focus and attention is not 100%. And uh, any kind of physical strain or mental stress triggers seizures for me. So I have to be constantly vigilant. Not eating on time gets me a seizure. Not sleeping well gives me a seizure. Everything a 30-year-old, a young 30-year-old would do ends up giving me a seizure. So I can't drink alcohol. I can't even go near alcohol. Um... Yeah, like a lot of my lifestyle habits have changed significantly. Even my own understanding of life in general changed significantly because of what I've gone through. The surgery happened. I spent about three, four months rehabilitating. And then I was trying to look for another person who's a young adult with cancer. And I couldn't find a single person because most cancer support groups or cancer support resources in India or in general in the world, have either, lots of cancer patients are either geriatric patients, which are like people who are in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, or pediatric patients, people who are under the age of 16. So I couldn't find a person who's of my age who I could discuss my challenges with. I had very specific challenges. I couldn't figure out how do I go back to living life? How, how do I go back to work? Should I go back to studying? How do I tell people what I've been through? How do I socialize again with friends? How do I figure out whether or not I want to settle down? How do I look for a partner? How do I marry someone? How do I tell them the fact that we perhaps may not have children or like it may not be a great idea to have children? So a lot of those things are very unique to people with, who lie in the 17 to 39 year 
uh, age group, uh, which is called the young adult age group, because you're at the pivotal point of your life where you like you're at the peak of your career, peak of your personal life, and you suddenly hit with like a wall of bricks. Yeah, I think it's a miracle that I'm still in the shape and form that I'm in. And I'm studying at Harvard University. It's ridiculous. My doctor's like, how the hell are you doing this? It's a miracle. Because my cancer is also one in a million. Like literally less than 1% people get it. And they certainly don't get it at the age that I got it. So my case was clinically very unique. And my recovery also has been clinically very unique because it's been well enough for me to get back to a rigorous master's program at Harvard University. But at the same time, I do still get seizures here. They're not as bad as they were earlier, but I still get them because it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of mental strain. Yeah, so there were I couldn't find anyone. And uh, I tried looking for resources for people like me for to answer the questions I had. Couldn't find anything in India. Couldn't find anything in South Asia in general. Found some in the West, in the UK and the US, but they were not culturally aligned to what we are used to. So I was like, hey, there's nothing that's here for people like us. I think someone needs to create that resource. So that's how I decided to write my book. So the book is on adulting with cancer with stories from people from Indian diaspora who exactly dealt with these issues. And what did the journey teach you, Sanjay? Oh, the journey taught me so much. Like um, one of my co-authors for the book has passed away already. And uh, she had stage four breast cancer and she had been through so many treatments, um, so many rounds of chemo, so many alternate therapies. And uh, we had just gone to a literature festival because we were invited. And we spoke right after Ruskin Bond spoke. And we were so happy. We were so excited to be these authors who've been called to a literature festival. First time authors that too. But um, I think a couple of months after that, she passed away and it was the rudest shock of my life that, you know, someone could look so normal and still be going through hell and uh, not show it on their faces at all. It made me realize how my cancer experience is very unique. And if anything at all, I'm the one of the lucky people. Although it's not an Olympics, we are not comparing like who's better at this and who's worse at it. But um, the journey uh, to write the book was also very interesting because I had a huge imposter syndrome about my communication skills thanks to the number of times I had been corrected in college. So I did not think I was good enough to speak, let alone write English. So it took a lot of courage. It took a lot of motivation. It took a lot of um, cheerleading from my friends to push me to get this done. But then I genuinely wanted to do something to give back to the community now I belong to. I had no option but to do something because I felt like I'm going to go mad if there are no resources. Um, and I thought that after me, at least someone else will have the resource. And it's not a book. It's not a self-help book. It's not a book that's giving you any advice. It's just an anthology of stories of people who are struggling in the same ways, who have the same issues as, say, you as a young adult cancer patient, survivor, caregiver. And it's just showing you one of the ways in which they dealt with it. Right? So... 
I think the raw, honest and authentic stories uh, sometimes help you a lot more than any advice you get. Because not everyone wants to thrive after cancer. Not everyone, this productivity obsession, which is a very capitalistic American way of living, has seeped into even our society. And uh, I don't think it's necessarily the most healthiest way of living. Because life is not about how much money you have, how much fame you have, how much success you have, how big your house is, how big your car is, how expensive your watch is. It's about the kind of relationships you've built and the amount of goodwill you have collected and the um, and the kind of impact you've made in society and people's lives, which doesn't require any money, success, influence, or property of any kind. So that's one of the lessons that I learned. And that's what I focus on. That even right now, if I have limited capacity to work, I certainly can't work a 14-hour job. I probably can't even do a very hectic eight-hour job. Maybe I'll be able to do in the future once I've recuperated completely. But right now, I can't. And I don't want to either. Um, but I can do work nonetheless. I can keep working. I can do keep doing projects. Even, even before coming to Harvard, I was working with the government of Telangana in helping them set up their EV skilling centers across the state. It is possible for me to continue working, just not in the way it was being done earlier. So I have a lot more focus on my health now than earlier. I would have ended with three life lessons. You already very organically gave us one beautiful life lesson. Any other life lessons you think that you would like to leave us with, Sanjay? I think I'll repeat some of the things I've mentioned throughout this episode. One, you're on borrowed time. Never forget that. So don't wait for a future to do things that you really want to do. Do them now. Don't leave them for unfor some unforeseeable future. You may not have that. One. Number two, don't take your health lightly. Because if you treat your body like it's um, an abundant resource, uh, which will never uh, need to be replenished, you're essentially treating it as trash and that's going to backbite at some point of time so treat your health as the priority number one in life number three the value of your life will be measured not by the amount of money you've made not by the fame not by the um, influence but by your relationships and the impact you've made in people's lives it doesn't need to be a gigantic impact it could be an impact on 10 people's lives three people's lives so focus on that. That's the most important thing. Those are the three that I can think of on the top of my mind. So the impact you're talking about, I truly believe in. And it's truly an honor to have had you on you and I. People like you come into our lives for a specific reason with a particular purpose. And you have found yours. While many of us are still groping to find us, this uniqueness and individuality that you carry makes you extremely special. You are one of the most beautiful human beings uh, I have met. Such a pleasure meeting you, Sanjay, and I'm sure everyone you talk to, you are inspiring and touching. God bless you, Sanjay. Thank you so much, Rashmi. Bye and take care. With that, we come to the end of this weekly quest of You and I with Rashmi Shetty. 
do let us know if you know people who make the world beautiful write in to rashmi dot the third eye at gmail dot com that is r a s h m i dot t h e t h i r d e y e at gmail dot com come let's explore this amazing world together both you and i